We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. What can we learn from the dying? That's been the life's work of my witness today, Dr. Christopher Kerr, who is the Chief Medical Officer at the Centre for Hospice and Palliative Medicine in Buffalo, New York, and an end-of-life researcher. He's also the author of Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning in Life's End. 88% of the dying have pre-death visions and dreams, which are both comforting to them and their families. And that's what we're going to be talking about what are these pre-life visions and dreams and what are the impact on the dying and the people who are looking after them? Christopher, you're the fifth generation of physicians, which is quite some background. How did that prepare you for what's become your life's work? I think I, I just had wonderful examples in that the people before me felt that this was a privilege to be a doctor and that it gave them a depth of meaning that was central in their lives. And I, 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 I think seeing that and surrounded in it was essential. And did you have any clues that people who were dying, and let's face it, doctors do meet a lot of people who are dying, are having these kind of dreams? Was any of that knowledge passed on to you or was this a discovery of your own? It, no, not at all. Ex- except that when I was 12, I saw my father at the end of his life. And Mm -hmm. he was having end-of-life experiences. It's interesting because it pulled me away from the dying, not to the dying, because it was such a painful and formative experience, just losing your dad at that age, that um, when I went into medicine, uh, I was pretty death-averse, actually. Uh, And I, I more or less stumbled into this. Death averse, that's an interesting phrase. Tell me about that. I I think death aversion is a common affliction for many contemporary physicians because uh, our role as physician is so uh, disproportionately focused on treatment. We've lost our role as comforters. So it's very, very easy to surround yourself in, in, in that pursuit. And I was no different. So I was very enamored with technical interventional medicine. And what we would do with the dying is truthfully abandon them. Because when there was nothing to do to them, we necessarily didn't uh, see that we had our full uh, role. And, you know, my experience, my partner died mm, probably 25 years ago now. And what his doctor said to me was sort of quite sort of shocking. He said to me, when we stop treating people sometimes, they start getting better. And I mean, I obviously knew that was entirely and utterly untrue because I could see with my own eyes that uh, my partner was in the last days of life. But my doctor or the doctor treating him couldn't actually say that 
they sort of almost had to give me this sort of false hope that somebody would get better when you stopped treating them. It's It was sort of a little bit bizarre. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absurd, actually. Yeah, I, I, I think medicine does a lot of that, tries to protect people from their own realities, which in the end is, of course, harmful, unintended. You know, I, I, I think there's still the remnants of a paternalistic approach and this notion, which is silly, that if you tell people the full truth, you take away hope. When in times of medical hopelessness, hope changes. So you, you were no longer hopeful for cure, but you were probably hopeful for comfort. Yes, and we could at that point have had a had a discussion about um, how the end of my partner's life could be made comfortable, for example. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The hope exists. It just changes its form. So you had a bit of a crash course in learning about um, how to help people who were dying because we're back in the uh, 90s. It's in the HIV crisis. And you have a, a patient who you feel could do some more living, but one of your nurses knew better. So tell me about that story. Yeah, I, I was I was actually very much in a groove of, of thinking that I could do things even in the face of futility, um, which I think a lot of medicine does. And so I, 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 and I, part of it was I was heartbroken for him because he was alone, like so many men at that time were who were dying. He was in his 40s. And I, I, I thought that if we gave him some antibiotics and some fluids, we could sustain his life for a longer period of time. So I walked into the nurse's station and, and I made a pronouncement that, you know, I believe Tom had more time. The nurse, without looking up, says, no, he's dying. I said, well, why are you saying that? And she said, because it's seeing his deceased mother. So the point was that people who were actually at the bedside and present had a deeper clinical acumen when they, to the point that they could prognosticate based on what the patient's experience was, that there were indicators of state and trend beyond the physical or the objective measures I was looking at, which is so critical because people die in totality. It's not just about your heart rate, how you're breathing, it's these other other things. Of course, he died exactly like she said. I, again, back to kind of think what I had seen in childhood, I was not eager to open my eyes to these kind of experiences at the end of life because of what I had seen as a child. So I was kind of come full circle again to have to confront what I had had seen with my own father. So the, the sort of trauma followed you on in that oh, sense? Oh, horribly. Horribly. Yeah. Because when I saw him at the end of his life, he was, I never seen my father other than someone who was cognitively intact, who I admired and could look up to. And all of a sudden he's fumbling with my shirt, talking about going fishing with me. So he was, he, that's a lot to process in itself, um, that he was different. And I knew intuitively that this was the end. And that's the last time I saw him. And it's one of those things I was never really comfortable talking about. It's actually kind of a weird story. So I was giving a TED talk and I was talking about our research at end of life. And I dawned on me how dishonest I was intellectually and that I had a perspective in this. And so just before I gave the TED talk, I, I 
I changed it to include my own because it dawned on me that this wasn't probably random, that I ended up studying the thing that had so impacted me earlier in my life. Yeah, it's amazing how our childhood sets up all of these kinds of things. So do you think your father was probably having some kind of uh, pre-death vision? Oh, completely. He was immersed in it. So he wasn't having any conversation with me that was based in our shared reality in the moment, but in a past a past experience that we shared yearly, which was to go up to northern Canada and fish. So I, 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 I could be wrong, but I remember also thinking that if he's not present, that that was a good place that he was. You know, his mind or his heart or his soul had taken him somewhere better than what he was experiencing in that moment. And it sounds like it was, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly moved at the moment, so please excuse my slightly wavering voice, but it seemed like he, his whatever chose to take him to a, a time with you that was incredibly special. Uh, he, yes, and, and there's a paradox. So that was his last 16 hours of life when life was being denied from him. And yet he was clinging to things that actually affirmed his existence and his life. So it wasn't about um, necessarily denying death or anything at all. It was it transcended that. He was looking back on his 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 life, and he pulled from it something that gave him meaning and comfort. I think, and um, you know, come to be thankful that I was in that with him. And that's the last time I ever saw him. Were you able to talk about this to your mother and to other members of your family? No. In fact, I acted like a, a lot of 12-year-old boys, I think, who have that kind of trauma it is quite the opposite. I lashed out. It was made more traumatic because at that time, particularly, there was this tendency to protect children from realities like death. And what had happened was I was clinging to him and a priest came and ushered me out of the room and said, he's confused. And uh. he, he, he therapeutically, I guess, in his mind, did the worst possible intervention of all. And I knew I was being taken from him against my will and that I would never see him again. So there was a tremendous amount of bitterness and just, of course, there were four kids in my family, just seeing all that grief and loss. And then life was a spiral. I ended up having behavioral issues, failing grade eight, getting kicked out of school, the whole thing. So it set in motion a, a, a lot of, a lot of things. So. So what was it like actually being told by this nurse that, hey, you know, she doesn't even look up because it's so normal that people who are dying have these visions. Did you sort of stop and think, what visions? Or did you sort of immediately know that this is something really important? I guess what struck me was I was immediately less concerned with the etiology. And maybe this was because of what I experienced as a child. What I grasped was the fact that it was so intrinsically therapeutic, and I couldn't let go of that. So I had here I was as a physician coming in the hospital. I was literally going from the cath lab or the ER to the bedside of a dying person with nobody or, and no technology. And so I was lost 
as it were. And yet here was something intrinsic to this process that was inherently therapeutic for the patient. That, that's what I was so impressed with. And of course, I, I really did. I, I, I was so out of place as a physician at, at a hospice bedside. So I really was educated by my colleagues in nursing and pastoral care and social work. And that's when medicine became more gratifying as well, because we were treating people, not just parts. So it had a pull to it, I guess. Your speciality was neurobiology. So I would guess that the temptation is to explain this by putting it down to something that's actually happening in the brain. Is something happening in the brain? Has uh, research been done to see what, whether these people are confused or, or what's going on? So the best way to answer that is to say we probably published seven or eight manuscripts, peer-reviewed manuscripts, university-approved studies that we've done. And we also filmed many of these patients. And that became the basis of a Netflix show and whatnot. And we did that to prove the point that they weren't confused. And as part of our study, we have over 1,500 participants. They're screened for delirium or confusional states. Many of these people are able to drive still, independent, paying their taxes, bills, etc. So they're clearly not confused. So I don't think the answer lies in a dysfunctioned or altered brain. So there's people who are fully cognitive or neurologically intact who just have a bad heart. And so, no, and that's really important that the vantage point we're looking at is not the moments before death or hours before death, but the days, weeks, and months. So I don't think you'd find, you won't find a neurobiologic basis for it. And honestly, I think that part of the beauty is we can't. No, no, no more than can I point to a part of the brain and says, you'll find love here. You know, um, I, I, I think it's, it's less about the brain, more about the mind, more about an abstraction. And I think we should just have reverence for it without understanding the circuitry. I think that's the beauty of it. And I think it's a, it's a perspective at the end of life that we don't have from this position. And that maybe is okay too. Now, what you're saying is that the people who have these dreams or visions consider them more real than real. So sort of give us a, a sort of a flavor of what we're actually talking about. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So it, we call them dreams because it's the closest nomenclature we have. But it's kind of funny because amongst the comments we most, most often hear are, you don't understand, I don't normally dream. No, this wasn't a dream. This was a happening. And they're very undreamlike in that there's not metaphor or odd connectivities. They tend to be based on very real definable events. And when we ask people to measure the realism on a zero to 10 scale, it's 10. So these feel virtual to the person experiencing them. So we tend to call them end-of-life experiences rather than dreams. And uh, they're mostly described, people are adamant, no, 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 this happened. Now, it could be in dying that sleep changes dramatically, the structure and patterns of sleep. So whether they're lucid dreaming, where it feels virtual, I'm not sure. But that's that's what we're talking about. So these very there's essentially the objective elements of dying, and then there's the subjective or the experiential. So it's really the inner processes that are happening as as one is nearing the end of life. And it's understandable that near death, um, your perspective and your perceptions are going to change. 
but they do so in very common and interesting ways that are powerful and really very reassuring. So you've got lots of videos of people talking about these experiences. Perhaps you would like to give us an example of one of these stories so that uh, we get a, a personal sense of how this might impact somebody. Sure. The The overarching theme is that as, as, as you get closer to death, the frequency of these events increases. So what we did is we applied a standardized questionnaire to people every day as they're approaching death. And the frequency of these events increases. And what's fascinating is, categorically, the content changes. As you get closer to death, you're more likely to see people who are deceased and who, who you've loved. And the people are very specific. They tend to edit your relationships. So people who conditioned or had comp- complicated their relationship tend to be forgotten. And the people who really, truly secured and nu- nurtured you are, are very much present. Very little is said between the dreamer and the persons, but everything seems to be understood. These don't include great epiphanies or pronouncements or declarations. They're about real moments that capture the depth of someone's love for another. And time and distance seem to go away. So you could be a 95-year-old man, lost your mother when you were five, but it's her voice that you hear say, I love you, and it's, you smell her perfume. So it's all of this that tends to put us back together with the people who we most cherished for having lived. And in this whole wonderful process that is comforting, you know, your your life again get, gets gets affirmed and, and death, while not denied, is seems to be less feared. So it, it, these events also sort of address the wounds. So if you lost a child, a baby, you know, you're reacquainted in a way that puts you back together. And that, that wound could be a regret, a need for forgiveness, a need to be reacquainted, to be put back. So whatever is specific to that person's story uh, often emerges at the end of life. So you tell a most moving story about somebody who was a veteran and had a lot of war trauma from the Second World War. Perhaps you can share that story with us. That's interesting because personally, that was probably the most meaningful that I've ever witnessed for a variety of reasons. So he was in his eighth decade of life and at 17, he was involved in the invasion of Normandy and he was on... um, a ship that was not not supposed to be doing issuing landing craft, but there was groups that were stranded. So he was sent in a small craft to pick them up. And, you know, there was a certain amount of triage and who was savable, who wasn't, who was left behind. And he, for 67 years, was traumatized with post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, classically, he never talked about it. He avoided parades, the VFW, all those sort of things. And, At the end of his life, these hauntings, these experiences don't deny the reality of your life. So if you've had these traumatic or negative experiences, they emerge, but they get translated or transformed in a way that's therapeutic. And in his case, he's first horribly traumatized. He can't sleep. He's seen blood and body parts and he can't can't sleep. And it's very hard to die if you can't rest because you need physical comfort, but you need psychological or existential comfort as well to sleep. And then one day he's, he's able to sleep, come in the morning, he said he slept well, 
and he had been having these intense experiences. I said, what did you dream about? And he said, well, he had two dreams. And he had a great dream where he lived what he said was the best day of his life, which was the day he got his discharge paper. <laughs> and he had a, a neutral dream where a soldier came to him on a beach that he didn't know uh, was faceless and said that he was coming. They were going to come and get him now. And there was something in that release that there, there must have been some kind of survivor's guilt or something that that he was then able to sleep comfortably and die at peace and i I guess what what has shakes me to this day is that all the talk therapy medical interventions group discussions never reached him or or soothed his pain and here he was at the very closure of life and his greatest wound not a physical wound but his greatest inner wound was finally uh soothed and he he was he was able to be unburdened of that enormous responsibility that he had carried with him his entire life and that's what's really interesting is that about 12 percent of these end of life experiences are either neutral or discomforting and we were very naive in thinking that we equated discomfort with bad <laughs> and actually they're some of the most transformative ones because they address this these core issues to us. So you've even recorded people who have led sort of less than exemplary lives, who've perhaps been in prison or something like that. Looking back on a life of crime and uh, violence, can these experiences help in those circumstances too? Yes, it was. Um, and and, and that, that's actually a very good one is Dwayne. I'm not sure if you saw it, but he was caught on film. And that was really interesting because we were just talking about other things and he happened to be filming. He, he had a life that you couldn't look back on. He, he, he couldn't afford to. You know, he had been to prison more than out and all sorts of abandonment, substance issues. He had actually been involved in a murder, which was deemed self-defense. But he, he clearly wasn't somebody who reconciled the wrongs of his life. He couldn't really, he just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And of course, at the end of the life, he dreams he's being stabbed where his tumor was, which was in his neck. And it gave him this reckoning he couldn't shake. And he broke down on film saying, you know, I'm not an, a bad person, basically. And what he ends up doing is he ends up asking to see his daughter. And when she shows up, he starts apologizing for, for everything he did. And like the soldier, after they reconciled, then he could sleep. And it, it, it was like this, there was some sort of justice in it. There was something that felt more fair and equitable to him, that he was reconciled with himself. There was atonement almost. And so again, it's just an example of, of these experiences are, are powerful in how they can end up transforming somebody. And, and, and the manifestation is that they can then be at peace and sleep. And what about children? Because one of the sad realities of life is that children die, and maybe they don't know people who are dead. What happens there? Have you looked at this? Yeah, not only do they not know people who have died, they don't often even have language. And often adults have protected them from their own realities yet they have less barriers to interesting and creative thought. And, and I think what's fascinating about children 
is they live in the moment. They they don't they don't view, view life in terms of finality and mortality. And when they haven't known somebody who has died to come back for them, what they'll often do is they'll have known pets. Uh, it may not be their animal. It could be a neighbor's grandparents um, that has passed. And the animals return to them and play the same role that a human would, which is really interesting. In several of the films, the children just put the exact words to it, which is that it means that they're not alone. It means that they're loved. And almost always that I can think of, they see the animal in health. So it, 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 it inverts it for them, but it also informs them that something's happening. And it's the best type of informing in that it's coming from within. So they seem to come to some sort of a different level of peace. And it's, it's truly remarkable that they, children do it better in some ways. And what's the most inspiring is that their concern typically goes for others. So, you know, we have children on, for, on film who at the age of 13 are seeing these deceased animals return, but are cautious in sharing it with the parent because they don't want to rattle the parent which is just such a wonderful testimony to, to, to their humanity that even though they're, 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 they've hadn't had a full life to learn from, they somehow are born or know or develop into this idea that even at the, the end of their life, there was this instinct or impulse to care for others. So what advice do you give to the staff that you train and to the families of uh, people who come to your centre, do you actually tell them about this sort of kind of thing and to look out for it? Yeah, and essentially, it's it's it's. I think our requirement is to give it permission to occur, and everyone's different. There's people who, you know, you will come into their room in the morning. You're you're not going to believe what happened to me last night, and there are other people who can't make sense of it, and. Um, or, or, or it's more usually the problems with the family. They think this is drug. They think this is metastasis to a brain, et cetera, et cetera. And so to normalize it allows it to occur in a way that, that feels more naturally. It's one of those things that can separate people from the bedside. And our obligation is to bring people closer to the bedside. So I had a woman recently whose mother at the end of her life was returning to her native Polish language and the daughter was sitting in the corner and she was disconnected because her mother was making unusual references. And when I explained that this is actually normal and typically very therapeutic and to get asked questions. And when she did that, I came in the next day and she's taking notes because she's learning all about her mother's pets, her grandparents, her childhood friends. She had placed herself back in this time that again was formative for her. And it redefines dying because dying then becomes less about emptiness and finality, but again, things that affirm life. We've actually done a lot of studies looking at bereavement and found that this enormously impacts our loss and grieving process and changes how we remember. How people leave us affects us deeply. And if you, if death is 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 recontextualized from empty to meaning, that matters. 
And I'm also thinking that it must be really important for the people who are dying not to be sort of silenced at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's, as we've taken death to its unnatural conclusion as a medical treaty or event, what we've done is dehumanize it. And as part of that dehumanization, we tend to sterilize, bubble wrap, or disconnect people. Dying is a human event, and dying is lonely. And I've never met a dying person who didn't want their voice to matter or to be, to be heard. Like they're, Most of them are looking up at a ceiling. And when we started this, it was interesting. When we started doing this work, the university wouldn't approve it because there's this belief that dying is the center set kind of space and we shouldn't intrude upon. Yeah, they've got better things to do than sit around doing making videos with you. Yeah. Yeah, right. But we just we need to be quiet, right? We need to we need to let them bake. And um when in fact it's so utterly lonely. And so it was it's just an interesting observation. In doing this study, people always say, you know, is it hard to get people to participate? In fact, very few have said no, and very few have not consented to be filmed even though they're disfigured and, you know, aren't look like their best version of self. But it's so meaningful for them to feel connected. And I think it's such a powerful thing. Now, you're not making any claims for the source of these dreams, are you? And I think that's really important to underline. No, No, we're fodder for everybody from, uh, yeah, no. So (laughs) the way we we view this is, is, Dying is this kind of keyhole. Death is this keyhole. And you can look through the keyhole and you can go and you can see paranormal. You can see afterlife. You can see religiosity. You can interpret it. And we were, we think dying is a mystery unto itself without having to interpret or editorialize. And our, our fidelity is to translating the patient's experiences as best we honor their words as best we can, film them whenever possible without interpreting. And I, 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 our big worry was that it, we were, uh, we started off actually, it's kind of interesting trying to educate the clinical world that this matters. And to, to do that, we obviously couldn't extend its interpretation. So, how has this whole study and this work changed you? So I, I, I'm by disposition not particularly spiritual or even enlightened. I came to this unnaturally in some ways or reluctantly. I think after all of this time, though, and, and the commonality between patients is so striking and how these events unfold for people that the, real, the reality of it to me is just what it is. I think I'm left with this idea that there's a better story than the one we may fear or imagine. That I'm impressed most that there's this connectivity between lives, whether they're deceased or not, that never leaves us. And again, this idea that that the most distant relationship is still accessible to us and never leaves us. Um, it sounds cliche, but but there's something there's something there's a permanent. They're not really not gone from what we feel that they're still p- present and familiar, and still 
bring us all those feelings that they did when they were here in our lives decades and decades ago. So it's this interconnectedness that, that, I, that I think is astonishing. And that the version of all of it is better than imagined. So it's so many of our patients wake up and they're on film talking about this and they want to go back to what they were experienced because that person was prettier, the warmth was greater, the laughter louder. What they were feeling, there was a, a deeper purity and meaning to it. And so what you find is they're not fight, fighting the dying of the light at all. They're actually fighting towards, not against, and they want to reclaim whatever it was they were experienced when their eyes were closed. And they're given this sense of absolute knowing that this was real. And so I think that's all hopeful. And I think for all the parts that are left unanswered, like where does this come from and what does it mean, I, I, I frankly don't care. I, I just think, I, I think we just, again, need to have reverence for what we're what we're witness to. And I think the reverence is for the mystery, the mystery of life and the mystery of death. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, life is mysterious that this experience for you at 12 has ended up impacting the rest of your life and your work has impacted lots of other people. That's sort of extraordinary and mysterious how it sort of fits all together. And it seems strange that death wouldn't be mysterious as well. Yeah, it's, I think it's left better un, untold. And, you know, it speaks to some degree of faith, not faith as in a higher power, but in faith in, in, in um, who we are, why we are, and, and who other people are to us. And it feels like we're not abandoned in the end. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So if you would like to participate in The Meaningful Life and send a letter in with uh, something that is a dilemma for you to discuss with my guests, the details are www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find a form to send in. And we have this particular letter that has been sent in for me to discuss. And I think uh, Chris will have hopefully something to say on this. How do I deal with my regrets that I did not do enough for my partner who died five years ago? It's not so much that I should have pushed him to go for this or that treatment, although that's there. It's more that I put personal survival over caring for him. I could feel myself being pulled into a dark pit and I resisted. At the time, I thought it was so I could have enough strength to nurse but I think I was protecting myself. If I could go back and change anything, it would be this time that I was downstairs watching TV and trying to switch off. He banged on the floor and when I went up, he suggested we spend some time together. No problem, I said, although I would have preferred to watch my TV series. Shall I read to you, I asked. No, sit here and talk to me, he replied. That was the last thing I wanted to do, but now I wonder what he would have said to me, what I couldn't hear. I was so busy looking for bright moments among all the sadness, like my favourite TV show, that I wasn't really there. I find it hard to forgive myself. 
Is this something that um, that you hear from time to time, Chris? There's a theme there that I hear a lot, which is that I think that our hope, uh, we place so much hope and encouragement on survival, even when futile, that it seems like a self-interest rather than acknowledgement of where the person's truly at. But I, I think it's perfectly natural. It's hope over experience. It, it's, it, it's wishing for. And those are all the ingredients that also probably brightened his day, that got him to sit up and participate and talk. This encouragement that might have been our agenda, but not the patient's agenda. It's, in, it's innate to our existence that we fight for life. It's why we ran from the saber-toothed tiger and don't walk into fire. It's instinctual. And I think that it translates into our relationships with patients. Is how do, where do we separate self versus from other when the two may, might be incongruent? And those that intersection point doesn't always occur at the right time. So it's not uncommon for somebody to be promoting more intervention for somebody who really doesn't want it, but that person isn't at that point of acceptance. You know, the other thing is, you know, usually those things honor the relationship. That's the role that person was meant to play to that person, you know, and, and everybody needs something different. But I think that if the patient were here and to speak, they would forgive. And I would be very surprised, to be perfectly honest, if they remember that moment. I mean, I, there have been times when I've actually apologised to people for things I've regretted, and sometimes they don't even remember. They don't even remember the occasion that, yeah, that it happened. True. Well, and I think what gets lost is that we saw a lot of this with COVID. Is that that people didn't have the death or were isolated from us, and and. You know, life is not defined by its final moments. We're much bigger than that. And I don't think people are truly alone. I, I think they're having these, again, these experiences. But, but because of the impact, the trauma it has on the observer, we're left with this idea that, that that's the final note we hear. Yet, really, it's a disservice because that individual's life is, is, that, is so much richer and defined by so much more than how the last days were experienced. And I think the problem in this letter, and certainly something I experienced when uh, my partner was dying, is just how difficult it is to talk about death. You suddenly realise that um, rather than our lives going on together, that uh, my partner was going to die and I was going to go on. And that's not really a conversation that's really very easy to have because it the viewpoints are just so totally different and how do you how do you bridge that that gap yeah that's such a great point i think it kind of aligns with what i'm saying is we're at different points on this journey mm. and they might not be the same and the role we're supposed to play isn't necessarily to be aligned with that person but yeah and that that aversion I hear a lot of, you know, I'm I if I would be honest, you know, my, my mother's um, 95, and I'm having some of that. I find it hard. I adore her, but I know I'm losing her, mm. and so it makes it 
my sisters are so much better at it than I am, as is my brother. But I find it very hard because it's, a, it's perhaps there's a selfishness to it, but I realize I, I'm mourning her. And maybe they expect, because you're the professional, for you to be better at this than, than they are. Yeah, I'm actually the worst of it, which is funny. They're all psychologists, and uh, they're much better than I. And I think that's also hard because, you know, she's not my patient, and, and I'm more comfortable in that role, I think, as physician mm. rather than son. Yeah. Um, they yeah. always say that the cobbler's children have the yeah, worst no shod feet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. dare not talk about the cobbler's mother. <laughs> That's right. Never thought of that. <laughs> but I don't think she's in fancy high heels. No, I think she got shortchanged as well. Yeah. So this is unfortunately where our conversation is going to end, unless you're a member of our supporters circle, um, when we're going to be talking about um, how we can have a good death. But um, I need to ask you before we go, what makes your life meaningful? I, I think what makes it meaningful is when your purpose aligns with with what you're given inside of you, who, who who you are, Alliance. And for some people, that's creativity in the arts. I think for a lot of people, um, including myself, what makes my life meaningful is when that pursuit is outside of self. So it's in caring for others. It's in caring for animals. It's whenever I step outside and... Uh, I think I'm more actualized and more gratified when that purpose or pursuit is for others. That's what makes life meaningful. Thank you for that. And if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.